Tough Talk with Jodie Rowe is a podcast covering all sorts of challenging topics. So we'll cover the future of oil and gas, mining, all the renewables, hydrogen, hydro, offshore wind, solar, all of those things will be on the table. No sacred counts at all. So get ready for some Tough Talk. So today on Tough Talk with Jodie Rowe, we welcome Kristen Nonge. Uh, from Armour Energy. Christian is the CEO of Armour Energy and Christian has an extensive, well-qualified list of companies that he's worked for, ASX listed as well. So we'll get Christian to give us an overview of his background, but also Armour Energy. So Armour Energy is an interesting ASX listed company. It's a producer and explorer, um, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, in a, a number of basins, which is good. So Christian, give us an overview of your background for Tough Talk today. All right. I'll try, Jody, to give you the Reader's Digest version. Otherwise, we could be here all day. But basically, uh, born in the West Indies in Trinidad, uh, of all places. So, you know, family's been there for about 300 odd, odd years. And then migrated to Perth in Western Australia in 1973 when I was a boy did high school in Western Australia at Aquinas College. And then my father died of cancer when I was 18. So I took the uh, what is commonly known as a gap year now and went to Barrow Island actually for what was supposed to be a year and turned into two and a half years and then was recruited by Schlumberger on Barrow Island and Spent the next, the best part of 20 years with Schlumberger actually around the world. So, you know, had opportunities to work in New Zealand, the UK, Venezuela, a lot throughout the Middle East, and then finished my career in uh, in New York working for Schlumberger Limited, which was, uh, which was a privilege and, mm. and very enjoyable. Came back to Australia in 2004, again to, uh, to South Australia, ran a small listed company called SDS, which was tidied up and sold sort of within an 18-month time frame. Then, again, walked into another ASX-listed uh, opportunity called Neptune Marine, which, again, was really interesting because it had a fantastic, you know, subsea technology that had been invented by an English fellow who was, you know, working in Perth and listed the technology to, you know, sort of provide funds for R&D. Anyway, cut a long story short, after five years, we sort of developed that through, I think, 11 acquisitions wow. uh, into a, a company that, you know, sort of had 750 people around the world operated in the US, Asia, Middle East and Europe. And we did, you know, a few hundred million revenue and and pretty reasonable EBITDA all sort mm. of pre-GFC. GFC was a bit interesting. And then uh, following that, um, set up Condor Energy Services in uh, 2011 and ran that from, you know, founding startup for about eight years to 2019 and then 2019 to, you know, 2022 basically ran a small engineering firm that, uh, that we own 100%, my wife and I. And then Armour Energy, which, mm. you know, interestingly was one of our clients. So I joined Armour about eight months ago to basically re-energise and reinvigorate the business. So it is a small producer uh, with its producing assets here in Queensland. And the role here is to effectively, you know, rebuild Armour to focus on becoming 
you know, cash flow positive, increasing production. And, you know, look, the the way I look at strategy, you know, simplified is there's a couple of key things to concentrate on. People being the first one. Yeah. Uh, production being the second. Fix the balance sheet being three and then get a better price for our product. So all of those things form part of the, you know, near-term strategy over the next 18 months. And so your time at Armour, although short, only eight months at the moment, have you gone through and redone the strategy? Is the board still the same since you've been there? Is there many changes internally? Well, I think like like every opportunity, there's certainly an opportunity to to reinvigorate and and you know grow the business internally and and upscale if you like. So we we decided sort of quite early on as part of the strategy, focus on people. So build a very small, lean, highly qualified team, which we've you know done for the most part. So I'm really happy with the way that we've managed to attract a very high you know quality set of individuals to report to me. The strategy in terms of focusing on those key things, you know, ultimately with gas production, you know, gas production is, you know, is a function of of drilling, is a function of doing some work on the existing assets or the existing well bore. So we're focusing on that. And then we have a number of exploration opportunities outside of Queensland. So mm. Victoria, Northern Territory and the Cooper Basin. So again, providing some attention to those assets over the course of the next 18 months, not only to meet commitments, but actually, you know, those assets are, you know, what I would determined to be world-class in terms of opportunity and the potential for hydrocarbon reserves. So we'll start focusing or we are focusing on those and have been for the last six months on on developing those as a, you know, aside from just the production. Yeah. So at the moment, your production is liquids as well as gas into the market? Yeah. So we produce, we basically sell four um, streams. It's gas, gas condensate, oil and LPG. So they're the four components that we that we have a market for. Yeah. It's certainly sounding a lot more interesting than perhaps what it did a couple of years ago. So you're getting a lot more interest from investors? I think so. I think investors ultimately like a, you know, a Phoenix, a rehabilitation story. And I yeah. think that's what Armour provides. You know, Armour has been, you know, I guess unloved for a, for a period of time. It's it, you know, started off as an exploration company. It moved into production by acquiring the Kinkora gas plant and surrounding acreage, and but it hasn't really had the balance sheet strength to be able to continue to develop those assets. So that's you know fundamentally part of the change is fix the balance sheet, invest more in the ground. And because everything that we do in Queensland is commercialised almost immediately. So, you know, there's a market, there's a huge market. We have access, excess capacity at the plant so we can monetize whatever we find very quickly mm-hmm. and then concentrate on those other areas that I spoke on in terms of exploration opportunities to continue to build reserves. Okay. Well, one of the things I've noticed about you, Christian, is throughout the whole time I've known you, you're never short of telling us what you think, which I love, right? There's nothing worse than, you know, we've all worked in big organisations that are political where you're just a hamstrung from what you can say. So at the moment, the gas industry is, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure I know how to describe whether people like it or whether people hate it. 
whether I don't know whether it's the most hated industry in the world. I'm not sure. Probably fractionally more than oil. But there's a few things that are going on which are very topical. And part of the reason for doing Tough Talk is to get more uh, views out there rather than just the typical media ones. So what I want to know from your perspective is around the gas cap, okay? So I have an amateur idea of what the gas cap is. I don't quote myself as as an expert, but... Just explain to us what the gas cap is and what what it does for the gas industry as far as will projects go on hold, will investment stop? I mean, honestly, anything that you think is of interest to people listening? Just firstly, as an industry, I think it's an industry that people love to hate but fundamentally rely on. So, you know, it's an industry that provides tremendous value And, you know, if I could sort of paraphrase one of the CEOs from the US who's been quite vocal recently, you know, the energy industry is all about bettering human lives through the access to, you know, cheap, reliable, sustainable energy. And that's the role that we play. It's, you know, energy. It's not just electricity. It's energy for manufacturing. It's energy and hydrocarbons to make manufactured goods that rely on the petrochemicals that we produce and so forth. So we have an enormous role within, you know, modern society. And I think that that is, you know, largely misunderstood Mm -hmm. or not well understood at all. So that's the first thing. And I think that, you know, here in Australia, you know, look, it's supposedly a free market economy. It's part of the Western world. We're a very developed nation with a very, you know, with an outstanding education system, which quite frankly was one of the reasons that I brought my children back to Australia from the States. And so we have everything going here for us, but also it affords us the privilege of taking a stance when it comes to a number of things and obviously climate change being one of them. So I look at, you know, government intervention and look, essentially the gas cap is, you know, the government effectively saying, look, the resources that are here, you know, the narrative that the government has been using sort of quite consistently over this period um, to sell the gas cap effectively is about wartime profits based on, you know, the Ukraine uh, situation. Now, that unfortunately or fortunately is actually, you know, incorrect, right? The, the war in Ukraine is part of the issue around high gas prices because the gas cap is about controlling, you know, or limiting right, gas pricing. Now, the Ukraine war has played a part in that because obviously Europe, which is you know heavily reliant on Russian gas, has had to find alternative sources. And the simplest way to do that is LNG. So yep. spot market LNG has filled that gap that you know Russia would ordinarily supply. But here in Australia, it's actually a little bit more detailed than that. And and this is part of you know the the either the fundamental lack of understanding by government or they've chosen a narrative which they know the public will support, Mm -hmm. okay? So it's one or the other. They're either ill-informed or they've chosen the narrative. Now, what here in Australia, the the reason for, and and again, we're looking at, you know, 2022 where spot market gas prices, you know, got north of $40 for a brief period of time. And they were, you know, on average for the year above $20, okay? Which when you think about the year before, the average being, you know, closer to, you know, $9, $10, And then the 50 years before that, gas being, you know, incredibly cheap. 
And the, the fact that gas was plentiful and cheap actually gave rise to the LNG industry. Yeah. Okay. Which government enjoys, you know, just looking at some rough numbers. I love to quote numbers, Jody. So last year, over 90 billion in revenue for as an export for gas, yeah. 6 billion alone in royalties in Queensland, and uh, about close to 14 billion federally, right, including the states and federal government, and it employs over 17,000 people. So how important is the, you know, the oil and gas industry to Australia? I'd say pretty important, right, yeah, in the grand scheme. It's absolutely phenomenal, those numbers. And I think sometimes there's, like you said, there's this misunderstanding or lack of information or whatever it is out there that people just don't, there's something in the message that's missing. To, to actually, because I think if you take out these exports, I think coal's 10% of the export market, you take out gas out of that export market, you take those royalties away, I keep saying we'll just be one big national park because I just don't get it. I don't. <laughs> I, the, what re, What's the industry that replaces them? Not just the importance of these for you know, mobile phones, glass, all the other things that these are byproducts, given for byproducts, if you know what I mean. Well, there's no replacement industry for it. It's it's so critically important just from those numbers that you quoted. So what's what's missing in the message? Uh, Help me out here. What's, yeah, look, I think the the... You know, reality is, Jody, that we as an industry have probably been pretty underwhelming in terms of our own narrative. And I guess when you examine that more deeply, you will discover that, you know, geologists and geoscientists and engineers um, and so forth deal tend to deal in facts and, and you know, talk about risk. And, and we talk in a language which probably isn't the narrative that appeals to the general population. So, you know, when we're asked a simple question and we, you know, justify it through science and, and you know, engineering, it probably doesn't come across as being, you know, as warm and fuzzy as perhaps things ought to be. So I think we've got, you know, I think we fundamentally as an industry need to understand the narrative. We need to understand how to engage with government at all levels more effectively. And I think that's something as an industry that we do tend to struggle with is the messaging. From a government perspective, in terms of the narrative, look, I, I, you know, again, looking at it quite simply, is the government, the government actually in recent history, and, and I'm talking about this federal government, has come out and categorically stated that it's a supporter of gas. Okay, that's the fundamental. We support the gas industry. The sad thing is, is that their actions have actually said exactly the opposite. In fact, they have they have triggered what I will consider to be the opposite impacts because if you look at Funding in, in for hydrocarbons for oil and gas was difficult enough, right? Because the government, again, having a negative narrative, that negative narrative is picked up by the population. The banks then who work for the people, right, who are very conscious of the, the public narrative, they then cut off funding to what they see as being, you know, this these dirty industries, right, which oil and gas has clearly been lumped in. So so banking finance kind of got a bit tight and, and, you know, made access to capital just far more expensive. So we've seen, you know, we've seen that happen and now we've got, you know, full government intervention. And it's not just the gas cap, Jody. It's the gas cap coupled with the ADGSM changes. It's the gas cap coupled 
with the the new narrative that you know in the May budget there may be an increase in tax on the industry, yep. and then it's also the the safeguard mechanism. So in very recent history, i.e. from December to today, which is only a few short months, we've had four separate you know attacks, if you like, on industry. Yeah. Right. So the government can talk till it's blue in the face about supporting gas, but actually what it does is say the exact opposite. Yeah, it's 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 really scary. And when that all gets out there from the government, how hard is it to to attract talent? You know, we have we do have, as we've discussed previously, an aging industry. I I wouldn't. I've only ever worked in mining and oil and gas where the investment in me as an individual was high. You know, so and thoroughly enjoyed the industries I worked in, the companies I worked in. So we need to attract talent to see that these are the companies that can change the future, that do have the budgets, the R&D. And I've said that to young people. (laughs) I'm just like, you need to go work for these organisations because they've got the power to, to make change. So how do you attract the talent. How do you see that going, especially now and into the future? Look, I, I, I personally, I think the industry's got an awful lot going for it. You know, even even you know the fact that it's a global industry affords you know global opportunities. And so, you know, from from you know our kind of perch here in in Brisbane, you know, we talk about the opportunity to you know work in an office, you know, go out to the field you know, go to different states in within Australia and ultimately, you know, overseas opportunities, you know, conferences and and study, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. So the industry has a lot, you know, going for it that's extraordinarily positive. So the, the trick is, you know, how do we convey that opportunity to the younger generations? And, you know, over the this summer that's just passed, we had three summer students that, you know, that came in to uh, work for ARMA. They neither of them was really looking at the oil and gas industry as an opportunity, but the opportunity for summer paid work came up and, you know, from university, from contacts, and they took the opportunity. And they were ultimately surprised, I think, by, you know, how engaging, diverse, entertaining the the, the work was. And it is entertaining because, Mm. you know, you've been around long enough, Jody, to know that oil and gas, we don't really pull too many punches you know, in industry, and and we have a language all of our own, but we also have extraordinary camaraderie, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that really came out within the the short time frame because I think we we do understand as an industry, and particularly here in Australia, where you know this this balance between work and and play, if you like, is pretty well developed relative to other places in the world. And so when you can work for an organisation that offers that flexibility and doesn't get upset if you decide not to come in on a Friday and work from home because you've gone, you know, you've driven two hours to go surfing down the Gold Coast, you've come back and you can log online at, you know, nine o'clock and work until six. And that, you know, that sort of maturity of an organisation and opportunity, I think is, you know, really appeals to the generation. So I was really thrilled with the you know, with the three summer students and the feedback that I personally got from their their time with Arma. So I think, you know, we can say, we can talk, but I think showing and involving people in the industry is really the only way to do it. And I think just as a, you know, sort of a side note is that we need to get into the schools. 
right? We need to get into the schools and we need to talk to the kids and we need to show the kids and we need to be realistic about what our industry does, what we provide, how critical we are, right, to human lives, right, and their well-being. I think that's got to be the message. I couldn't agree more because I always feel that it's it's it behaves in a very exclusive way and and we can't afford to be ex- exclusive we should be in the schools and i always remember mining doing it really well in the west you know they'd send kids up we had an arrangement with a high school north of Perth and at Barrack and um, Plutonic and they used to do rotations and they were studying geology and it really got them engaged and interested in working, you know, in the mining industry. But do do you see that as the industry role or do you see that as, because I mean AP is coming up in May, there will be school children there. There'll probably be a few protesters as well, I would imagine. Do you think it's just solely yeah, the yeah. industry and <laughs> to to get that message out, or do you think the actual operators and the contractors should do it as well? Oh, look, I think that it's you know it's our industry. So you know, my default position is going to be if it's our industry, then everybody needs to be actively engaged in yeah. the messaging and the narrative, and so. You know, I just I look at sort of simple things, Jody, and and I remember a couple of years ago we had an opportunity to go into a school and do a presentation, you know, about the industry, and and you know we tried we we sort of scratched our heads to go how can we make this fun and engaging so that the kids actually will remember what we're talking about. So we actually took in you know a bunch of Tim Tams, a bunch of Aero bars, and some Peter's <laughs> ice cream, and some other you know sort of household chemicals. And it was specifically talking about fracture stimulation because, you know, fracture stimulation mm. for a long time here in Australia was very misunderstood. It was, you know, maligned a bit like our entire industry is being today. And so, you know, this conversation, when you start, you know, showing kids by saying, you know, look, this is what permeability and porosity is, for example, and you don't just talk about it, you show them, you, you take an aero bar and you say, look at all these holes in an aero bar, but the holes aren't connected. Now look at a Tim Tam, bite off the corners of a Tim Tam and, and, you know, suck your tea through the Tim Tam. You can do that because all the holes in a Tim Tam are connected and that's called permeability. And then we got the, you know, the Peter's ice cream and and we made a frac fluid out of it. We just, you know, gelled it up basically because ultimately Peter's ice cream is, you know, made of the same primary constituent. So, so we did that. And you know what? The kids loved it. We went through, you know, a ton of Tim Tams, a ton of Aero bars. The kids loved it. Parents probably didn't like it so much when the kids got home, but it was a fantastic opportunity to demonstrate and to talk about science, but in a, you know, in a way which is interesting and memorable for the kids. Yeah. And that's what we have to do more of. Yeah, absolutely. There's to try and get that sort of understanding and awareness high. And that's really the whole purpose of the podcast is to get out there and actually make sure, because I'm sick of listening to the media give a view and it's a complex issue. So what I wanted to know was, you know, we hear, right, there's, I think there's six coal-fired power stations left in Australia. Um, (laughs) As compared to China, I think it's something like, Three and a half thousand completed or under construction. Like it's just phenomenal. So gas has always been touted as the transition fuel. So so what what do you think that what what does that mean to Australia? 
because I'm not sure that people really understand what that means. Yeah, it's. I don't think they do either, to be totally honest. And and certainly we haven't got you know again the messaging right about how critical it is to human well-being. So that's something. But you know when it comes to you know a transition fuel, you know that's it's a transition fuel for Australia. It's a transition fuel for the Western developed world. It's not a transition fuel for you know the top twenty countries in the world, for example where access to clean fuel just for cooking, right, is not available. Mm. So, you know, you, you ask people of Nigeria, Ethiopia, Democratic Republic of the Congo, China, Indonesia, Philippines, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, India, ask them about this same question, you get a very different answer. Yeah. Right? So, you know, a, again, education and, and again, Australia, I've often said, you know, sort of tongue in cheek a bit that, you know, here in Australia, we're a bit fat and happy, right? We, we live in a, in a tectonically stable country, politically, you know, stable, really. You know, it's a wealthy country. We've got, you know, fantastic farming. We've got oil. We've got gas. We've got, you know, a, a truckload of, you know, critical minerals. So, you know, iron ore, the whole gamut. So ultimately, we're a very, very lucky country and, and, and clearly no mistake why we're often referred to as the lucky country. So, but I sit back and I wonder, Jody, you know, what gives us the right here in Australia, right, or anywhere that it has the same, you know, wealth as Australia does, you know, wealth of citizens. How, what is, you know, how do we sit back here and not consider what's happening in the, some of those countries that I mentioned, right, that just don't have access to cooking fuel, far less heating and cooling and all the rest of the, you know, the benefits of oil and gas. You know, that's that's a question that, that I have because it is a, a developed world privilege to be able to complain, right, and to, to jump on your high horse and to start talking about, you know, global action, right? But it's a very different narrative in a whole lot of countries that have a whole lot more people suffering where yeah. energy poverty is a real thing. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think when you're actually looking at those countries, so at the moment, say Australia's got about 40% power generation from re- renewables, in order for them to reach those targets, you know, we need to increase renewables, shut off coal-fired power stations, which clearly they're not maintaining perhaps the way that they used to. Is it, how does that happen? I'm personally confused because battery storage has still got a long way to go. There's all these other technologies, hydrogen, which I never seem to get an overly is it economic? Is it even going to happen? Will I be dead when that happens? I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm missing something on that space too, to carve out gas, carve out coal. There's, there's, there's a big gap, isn't there? Who's the front runner? There, there, there is a, there's a huge gap, and I think that again. You know, it's about the, the the language that we use or the public uses with respect to energy. So, you know, I always, again, sort of ask the question, okay, we refer to renewable energy. What is renewable energy, right? Explain to me what is renewable energy. So, of course, it's always the sun, the wind, the waves, hydro, right? That's, you know, and I'll say, yes, absolutely. I don't disagree that those naturally generated energies, right, the sun, the wind, 
you know, hydro waves, right? Naturally occurring. Totally agree that it's renewable and sustainable, right? That's not part of the argument. However, they all require capture, mm. storage, and distribution. And last time I looked, there's nothing renewable in the capture, storage, and distribution value chain with those cleaner, greener energies, yeah. right? So I think, you know, again, my personal belief is that, and again, you know, no one should take this for a lack of support because I, I believe that it doesn't matter what I believe, right, in terms of climate change or an, anthropogenic climate change, right? It doesn't actually matter because ultimately we have to get to a point where we can find energy sources, right, to last, you know, the next millennia because ultimately hydrocarbons will run out as will critical minerals. Yeah. So how do we recycle, renew and so forth, right? So, you know, ultimately, again, it doesn't matter whether I believe in, you know, anthropogenic climate change or not. The issue is we have to get to where we need to get to anyway, Yeah. right? So what do we do about it and what pace can we do? And, and my concern is that we're rushing headlong into, you know, net zero by 2030. Now it's 2050. And the consequences of that plan of action are not well understood. And we're only now starting to see some of the consequences of those, which is basically energy poverty, yeah. right? So, you know, my view is a little bit different. And, and ultimately, I, I sort of try and break things down into smaller pieces. So, you know, when people say to me, oh, you know, Christian, you're just not a believer in EVs and so forth. And I say, well, what makes you think that that's actually not true? I think an EV is a fantastic idea. Right. And I said, the reason why I think it's an idea is because we can solve small problems with EVs. And again, if you go and you sit offshore, New South Wales, you know, a couple of kilometres off the, you know, the, the um, Sydney heads, North heads there at Sydney, you can literally see the dome, the smog dome across the city. EVs and, and reducing congestion in cities, it's a small problem, but you fix that small problem and that goes towards fixing the bigger problem, mm-hmm. right? So focusing on little problems and, and addressing little problems and dealing with those before we go headlong into a big global, you know, issue, which requires a lot of thought and careful consideration and we need to sit down and say, well, what are the consequences if I do this, yep. right? And and that's a part of, you know, I think that just has been poorly managed is understanding the direct consequences of the actions that we are taking. Uh, so, Christian, just in summary, give us a, a, a give us an overview of the next 12 months for Armour Energy, given that it's gone through a bit of a transition over the last eight months. Uh, and it sounds very exciting, different basins, exploration. What do you think the next 12 months is going to be for Armour? I think, Jody. so we're, I guess we're focused on increasing production from Surat. That's the number one focus. So exciting that we're going to have some work in the basin, some meaningful work to increase production as a first start. We've got a, you know, a, a relationship that we've put in place last year with Schlumberger to provide some technical services, you know, software support, peer review, you know, materials and so forth. And I'm really excited about that opportunity. And and to date, we're, we've embarked on a couple of projects like seismic reprocessing and looking at network debottlenecking of the plant. And they're all bearing fruits. So I'm really encouraged by early progress. So I think yeah. we'll start to demonstrate over the next few months some real progress towards achieving those production aims. 
Then we'll go into the field in the second half of the year, do some work on a couple of existing wells. You know, ideally we'll drill a couple of wells in the Surat Basin, at least one based on the reprocessed seismic. And, you know, the, the aim is, you know, within this calendar year to sort of have an exit rate of about 10 TJs a day in the Kinkora plant. And then by the end of 2025, be producing 20 TJs a day or more. So that's the, the goal for here. With the, the, the approval process is full steam ahead down in Victoria to drill Enterprise North One in the Otway Basin. So that's progressing well. And then the Northern Territory recently announced the heads of agreement with Lucapa Diamond Mines or the Australian Natural Diamond Company for the Merlin Diamond Mine to supply gas. So that's really good because mm. that's an immediate commercial opportunity. So that allows us to go back into Glide, do a little bit of work on the field, understand it a lot more, and then we've got an immediate commercial opportunity in 2025. So very excited about that. The Cooper Basin, you know, my old stomping ground, you know, everybody <laughs> loves to hate the Cooper Basin in Australia. Yep. Tend to love it in winter more, of course, because yes. the weather's quite pleasant. But we've got a fairly big acreage position there. I think there's some really exciting stuff coming up. We've had a relook at some of the work that's been done. And I think, you know, our goal now is to truly assess what we have and then, you know, have a strategy with, okay, now we understand it. What do we do with it? So lots of opportunity in the next 12 to 18 months. And I'm I'm looking forward to it. Oh, that's terrific. So thank you very much, Christian. It, it's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to catching up with you at Apia, I hope, I in, in May in Adelaide. And um, thank you very much. And I wish you all the best with Armour Energy. I hope it continues to thrive for the next 12 months. Thank you. Thank you, Jodie. It's been lovely talking to you. 